So we're continuing our uh, series, uh, walking our way through little different parts of the, the New Testament and asking this question about identity. And in particular, we're asking the question, look, it's all very well thinking about what does a Christian life look like, uh, as if it's a list of rules, do's and don'ts. It's all very well thinking about what does, how does a Christian think about life, as if it's a list of things we should believe, a sort of tick list of theological concepts. But it's actually when the Bible talks about following Jesus, it actually talks in much deeper, more, rather richer terms about who we become, who we are, if you like, our identity. And identity um, comes in many different forms. There are many different ways we can talk about it. And the Bible uses a whole host of different um, word pictures, images, um, angles on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we've uh, had read for us by Sonia this tiny little passage uh, from Romans chapter 8. Uh, it be worth having it in front of you because we're going to dot backwards and forwards around it. Page 1135. And the place it starts is in a slightly odd place. It starts with language that we perhaps wouldn't associate with being a follower of Jesus. At least we wouldn't associate it with the sort of normal everyday stuff because it feels a bit extreme. Paul lands in the middle of this letter to the first Christians in Rome with this language of slavery or sonship. Slavery or sonship. Now, first we just need to get um, the, the whole question of gender out of the way, okay? Just before we trip up over this language of sonship. I think it's rather important. Look, the translation that we've got in front of us says sonship because actually literally in the Greek that's what Paul writes. He talks about being adopted as sons, being sons of God there in verse 14, verse 15 and so on. But lest any of you who aren't male decide that that therefore means it doesn't include you, the point about what Paul's writing is that he is not interested in this case in gender so much as status. Now, 2,000 years ago, it mattered hugely whether you were a boy or a girl when you were born into a family. Now, we can argue as to whether that is still the case today, but we certainly aspire that it shouldn't. We certainly aspire that the relationship between a parent and their child should be the same whether they're a boy or a girl. 2,000 years ago, it patently, explicitly, concretely was not. If you were a boy, you were way up the pecking order from if you were a girl. Not least because you were the one that would inherit and they would not which makes it rather vital when Paul is writing 2,000 years ago um, in verse 17 about becoming God's heirs, inheriting. If he wants to make the picture language work, he has to talk about being sons of God or else it makes no sense to them at all. So when you hear sonship, what you simply need to hear Paul saying is, you know that status, you know that relationship that 2,000 years ago only applied to sons but now applies to children that's what we're talking about. So when I'm preaching, I'm going to talk about being children of God, but I'm not trying to ignore and avoid the fact that he talks sons. He had good reason to do so. Things have moved on. Whether as far as it, we could do, uh, that's a thing to debate another day. But that's what we're talking about, being children of God. And what he contrasts it with is being slaves. I'm not sure that that's the obvious pairing, is it? I mean, if I said to you, what's the opposite of being a child of somebody, you'd probably think, I don't know, being an orphan? Actually, in this case, he says, you're not slaves, you're children. Um, go back just a couple of 
um, verses, verse 13 onwards. For if you live according to the sinful nation, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. He's talking about all of this sort of stuff. And then he says, verse 15, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave against a fear, but you received the spirit of, and literally he says, adoption. Adoption. That's the word. Being made a child is the sort of conglomerate there. there. Why does he choose slavery? Again, it's because 2,000 years ago, that's the language that would have made the most sense. Not simply because Greek and Roman society 2,000 years ago was entirely built on slavery, but because the very first listeners to this letter, and it would have been something that was read out in a, in a sort of gathering rather than read on a page, because the very first listeners would have had a narrative in their heads that you and I think of as the Old Testament story, but for them was their story. And the Old Testament stories of God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, being rescued from slavery. Slavery in Egypt, under the pharaohs, being on the point of being wiped out, being so harshly treated to the point of almost genocide. Being rescued from slavery and being brought out through the wilderness and to the promised land. And the language that God uses of them in the Old Testament is precisely this language. He says, you once were slaves in Egypt. You were helpless. You lacked any freedom. You were in captivity. I, though, said, this is my son, talking of Israel as a whole. These are my children, talking of the people in Israel. I am going to rescue you. You're going to be mine. And I promise you, this promised land, remember the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where you'll be safe, the land where you won't be slaves anymore, the land where you'll know me as God and you'll worship me as you should. There's the story. Slaves through the wilderness to the promised land, from slavery to childhood, being adopted in him. And what I want to suggest to us is that that language of childhood, of being adopted, is incredibly powerful for us today. And that just as the story of God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, had three tenses, past, future, and present, so too the Christian life has three tenses. The past, an event that has happened that has made a difference. The future, a promise that is sure and certain. And the present, an experience of that reality now. Past, future, present. And actually, if we can get our heads around all three of those, this idea of being a child of God will make the sense it's meant to. What often happens, though, as Christians, is that we get rather attached to one of the three, or even two of the three, and we miss the full spread of the story. And I'll come back to that right at the end. So let's think about these three tenses of being children of God. The first tense is the past, something that has happened. Verse 15 again. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of, and literally the word is, um, it's a sort of, the Greeks like to put words together, okay, to make sort of compound words, and it's a word that begins with the word son and ends with the word made. So it, it, it's literally son made, and we might say adoption. In other words, Paul is saying to them, if you're somebody that follows Jesus, if, God, if you're somebody that's received the Spirit of God, there is an event that has happened in the past, and one way to understand it is to say, God has adopted you. Now, 
in a gathering like this and over a Sunday like this, there will be some of us in the, in, across all souls who've experienced adoption as being adopted. There may be some people here who have adopted children. Most of us here, I suspect, will know somebody who's been adopted or have been adoptees. All of us will be able to get our heads around the very remarkable, beautiful, unique picture that adoption is of a particular type of relationship. Because when you are adopted, somebody makes a decision to take you from being on the outside of their family to being on the inside of their family. You weren't born into it. You were chosen and brought in. Very often before you have anything to contribute. If you're adopted as a baby, you have absolutely nothing to contribute apart from a load of dirty nappies and you're going to drink and eat a lot. You don't contribute to it. You don't really aren't able to prove what the future looks like. You simply are a baby. But this person, this couple, this household decides we're going to make you part of our family. And there is a moment when the papers are signed and the legal documents are drawn up when you are in. From that moment on, however you feel about it, however they feel about it, whatever you experience of it, it's just an objective truth, objectively a fact. You are now a child of this family. That was the same for Paul 2,000 years ago. It hasn't changed much in the meantime. There's a legal moment when something has changed. Here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't say that we're all born as children of God, as if it's an innate right. What he does say is, we are all offered the gift of adoption. God looks at us and loves us as we are, not because of what we can offer him, not because of how religious we are or how good we are or how much we pray or how much money we give away. Simply, he loves us because he made us. And he says, I choose to adopt you into my family. I want you in my household. I want you to belong. Before you've got anything to offer him. It's one of the many reasons that we baptize um, babies here in All Souls, of families that are going to bring them up in the faith. Because actually that picture is of a baby who cannot offer God anything. Uh, when I was baptized, I screamed at the vicar for the entire time between I was handed to him and long after I was handed back. I clearly didn't want to be there. I hadn't chosen to be in church. I couldn't say the Lord's Prayer. I wasn't going to sing any songs. I screamed. But the point wasn't, what's this boy got to offer God? I didn't even have faith to offer him. God was offering me. Adoption is about what's being given. You have been offered a huge gift, given something that you can't buy with good works, given something that you can't lose by messing up, simply a gift. It's a past reality. You have received the spirit of adoption. Now, Paul's first readers knew this. They knew it because they looked back on an event in the history they call the Exodus with the Passover meal and all of that that went with it. They knew that it was an objective moment in history when God had done something. But of course, it wasn't enough that God simply got them out of Egypt. God got them out of Egypt and said, hey, look, the promised land. There's a promise. There's an offer. There's something to hope for. There's something to long for. And the same is true here in Paul's language. He's very clear that on one level, we ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs. 
heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In other words, there's something to look forward to about this being a child of God. Verse 18, which are some of the verses after the passage we had read, he talks about our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 19, we wait with eager expectation. Um, uh, verse uh, 21 talks about the future tense of being liberated and becoming uh, uh, the children of God. Verse 22, groaning as in the pains of childbirth. That, uh, by very sort of um, uh, logic, means there's something in the future to look forward to. And here's the most surprising verse of all. The sort of verse that makes you think, hang on, Paul, were you concentrating when you wrote this? Verse 23. See what you think is odd about this. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption. So Paul has said back in 15, you have received the spirit of adoption. Past event, done. Paper signed, sealed, delivered on your wall in the praying. But now he's saying, verse 23, as we wait eagerly for our adoption. Somehow for Paul, this is both a past event that's already happened and a future promise that we've hardly tasted yet. Now, I am of an age... Um, that I still remember you 2 from when they were sort of fairly new on the scene. And I'm sorry if you hate you 2 don't worry. I'm neither going to sing nor play any of it nor um, quote too much of it. But what I remember growing up um, as then and now, a bit of a U2 um, groupie, um, was that there was a period back in the... I don't know how long ago it was. I'm not going to try and quote um, dates because some of you will know better than me. There was, a, there was certainly back in my teenagehood... There was a time when a certain group of Christians got very excited about you two suddenly because they went, hang on, this Bono, he talks about Jesus. You know, he's clearly got faith. He's unembarrassed about it. Uh, he continues to be unembarrassed about it. Uh, he's, a, he's a campaigner. He's radical, all of that, absolutely. But he, he clearly has a real faith. And then they brought out a song. And it was a song that lost them millions of fans all in one go. You might not have even been aware that this happened. It's the song that's still one of my favorite that they ever wrote. Um, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, if you don't know it, go onto YouTube and just listen to it. Turn up the speakers good and loud. It's a glorious, glorious anthem. There were a whole bunch of Christians, and it got a particular head of steam in the United States, who said, hang on, Bono, you claim to be a Christian, but now you're saying you still haven't found what you're looking for. But we have, we've got Jesus. We found him. Why are you saying you haven't? And they saw it as a real crisis of faith. They thought Bono had lost his way. They thought he'd lost his religion. Actually, as far as I'm concerned, he'd found it. He was writing about exactly what Paul writes about in Romans 7, Romans 8, and all over the place. What he discovered was that actually the more you get to know God, the more you taste of the experience of knowing God, the more you realize that you ain't seen nothing yet. It's like picking up a teaspoon of sand off a beach or a drop of water from an ocean, and going, I haven't got it yet. There's so much more to know. There's so much more to experience. And that's why Paul is able to talk about adoption as both a past fact, I am a child of God, and also a future promise. One day I will be an inheritor. One day I will experience fully what it's going to be like to be a son or a daughter of the Most High King. 
Actually, the whole of the Christian life is lived between those two poles. What we know is true, in fact, because of Jesus' past life, death, and resurrection, that exodus moment when we're saved from slavery to sin and death, and a future day when all things will be put right, when God draws a line under history, when every tear is wiped away from every eye, when there is no more sickness or death or dying or loneliness or departure, when all things are put right, we live between those two poles. And what do we do in the meantime? We do a lot of groaning, according to Paul. We groan as in the pain of childbirth. Now, Paul hadn't experienced childbirth, and clearly I haven't, but he knew that in the midst of childbirth is that deep despair at times, groan and pain at times, but it's all about the future. It's all that longing for what's to come. Past fact, future hope, present reality. You see, we have to be careful there. Paul doesn't say, look, in your heads you know it's true, and in your hearts you look forward to the day when it's all sorted, in the meantime you're on your own. And I think there are some Christians that live like that. I think there are some ways of living the Christian life that say, well, look, I know the facts, Jesus died for me, I'm forgiven, I belong to God, and I do believe, or I try and believe on my better days, that one day Jesus is going to put it all right and I'll get to be with him. In the meantime, I basically have to do my best. Put my head down, go for it. Paul doesn't say that at all. He says there is a present reality to be experienced, to be enjoyed. And this is the way he describes it. Verse 15 again, right at the end. By him, that's by God's spirit, the called alongside presence of God. By him we cry, Abba, Father. Now let me reassure you, that's not another pop culture reference. Abba was simply an ancient word that was the closest equivalent they had to Papa, Dada. The, the most familiar, the most intimate, the closest way of connecting with a par- heavenly parent. The Spirit himself, going on to verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So he's not saying, hey, look, you've got the adoption certificate on your wall. Every day when you're feeling a bit miserable, look at the adoption certificate and think, legally, I'm adopted. Great. Nor is he saying, on those days that you feel like you're in the wilderness, just look forward to the day when God puts it all right. Both of those are useful, true, important, but they're not the whole of it. He's saying, when you're in the wilderness, just like Israel had to pass through from from Egypt to the Promised Land, when you're in, in the wilderness, there is an experience of God now that it is right to hunger and thirst for. It's right to expect. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. God, come alongside you. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on calling dad, calling mom, our heavenly parent, talking to God in that most intimate of ways. Sometimes he will feel further away than the farthest side of the moon. Sometimes he will feel closer to you than breathing. But the Holy Spirit is there to give you a taste of the future right here in the present. Past, future, present. I am adopted. It's done. Over. Finished with. I've got the certificate. Got the t-shirt. All sorted. Done. It's an objective fact. Future promise. God has promised that one day Jesus will return. Draw a line under history. Put all things right. I will be an heir of all his promises. But present reality. A present experience. Being able to call God my heavenly parent 
being able to, as a previous vicar of mine when I was a, a student, used to talk about eyeball to eyeball with God. Sometimes he's going to feel further away than anything. Other times he feels further to us, closer to us than breathing. But he's our heavenly parent. He loves us through and through. He knows us inside out. We mustn't miss out on the promised experience of being his children. We're going to pray. And just as we're quiet um, and as we prepare to to worship and to uh, continue to sort of engage with what God's given us, can I just suggest that in the quietness, we take a moment or two to be still. We take a moment or two just to place ourselves on that journey. Past, future, present. To ask the question, do I know what has been done for me in the life and resurrection uh, and gift of Jesus? That's adoption certificate. Do I know that's true? To ask the question about my future. Do I have a, a knowledge of where this world is heading, of where my life is heading, of this reality of the future where all things are put right? We sometimes call it heaven, but the Bible talks about heaven and earth being brought together and all things being made new. Do I know that that's the future for me as a child of God? And do I remember daily in the midst of all the groaning in the wilderness to take hold of the experience right now of being loved by God? and of loving him in return. It might be that you've never spoken to God like that. Take the risk of metaphorically looking up and seeing God, your heavenly parent, looking at you with love. It might be that all this talk of a heavenly father has always put you off because of your own experience of your own parents or even of your parenthood. But hear the truth that God is everything that we long for, the perfection of being loved without uh, holding back. And dare to ask that this week, daily, we would know what it is to walk steadily with God as our parent and we as his children.